Welcome to Season 4 of the StoryGrid Editor Roundtable Podcast. This is a show dedicated to helping you become a better writer following the StoryGrid method developed by Sean Coyne, an editor with over 25 years experience. My name is Leslie Watts, and I'll be moderating the roundtable today. Here with me are four of my fellow StoryGrid certified editors, Jari Bolander, Valerie Francis, Anne Holly, and Kim Kessler. Each week, one of us pitches a film as an example of a significant story principle. Then we team up to examine the idea from many angles to give authors a deep insight into story. For season four, Anne is studying complex story forms. To start us off on a really complex note, she pitched Cloud Atlas. Cloud Atlas, released in 2012, is a fantasy film on a reincarnation theme directed by Lily Wachowski from a screenplay she wrote with Lana Wachowski and Tom Tyker based on the 2004 novel of the same name by David Mitchell. Jari, Kim, and Valerie will explore different aspects of the complex story to help Anne and everyone else understand how, when, where, and why a writer might use this kind of story form, and whether anyone should. Anne is going to start us off, so why don't you tell us why you chose Cloud Atlas to kick off your season four study of complex story form? Well, the goal of our podcast this season, as you said, was to examine a single story principle of interest in our own writing, and complex story structures were my choice. And boy, this was a humdinger of a first shot. I went to sleep last night after immersion in the movie thinking, I'm just not strong enough or creative enough to structure a story like this. I should just write a straight linear narrative like I've done before. I quit. Why? because the structure is really alienating. It's difficult. I will say up front that this movie pushes the boundary of what it's possible for a movie audience to absorb. Paradoxically, the Wachowskis had to make the movie more complicated than the novel in order to make it work. And we'll talk a little bit about that. But did I enjoy it? Yeah, I did. I I love the book. I am a huge fan of the book. And I thought the movie was pretty good. It was a difficult or impossible book to adapt to, to film. And I thought they did a an interesting job. Both book and movie are intriguing, and they move in ways that straight linear narrative couldn't have done. Because of the way the movie has been arranged, it's really hard to pinpoint a global beginning hook, middle build, and ending payoff, so I decided not even to try. Each of the six stories has more or less the expected story structure. But the novel overall doesn't. So let's talk for a minute about genre. The overarching connecting story that aligns these six stories is a sort of a Pandora's box about the decline of the human species caused by escalating disasters that arise from our own worst traits of greed and just nasty power hungriness. And then with hope and courage coming out at the very end, because even love survives among a ragtag remnant of humanity. It feels more like a morality story with humankind transcending itself, maybe barely, when individuals overcome their greed or their cowardice or their avarice to become ready to sacrifice for the whole human race, although there's a lot of action in it too. 
One thing is clear, though, the movie is made up of six separate but intertwined stories, and each one of those stories has its own genre. So I'm just going to run through them in chronological order of the chronology within the story. Adam Ewing, in the course of a long Pacific voyage, encounters a Moriori, a, a Polynesian man who has escaped slavery. He saves the Moriori's life while being doctored to death by an unscrupulous quack on board the ship, and then is saved in turn by Autua, the Moriori man. And by the time he arrives home in San Francisco, he has a new understanding of slavery and devotes his life to abolition. The genre of this story seems to me to be worldview maturation in a historical age of sale setting. And the style of it in the book is epistolary. He is writing a journal. The next story is Robert Frobisher, who is forced to flee England and to leave his boyfriend behind because he's such a profligate that everyone's after him for money he owes. So he dupes his way into the household of a great but fading composer. And after he does that, he begins his own great musical composition, which the old composer wants to take credit for. He's forced to flee again after a contretemps with the composer. It's a little bit different in the book than in the movie. And Frobisher elects instead to take his own life so that his great composition just barely survives. The genre here is morality, probably testing surrender with a love story subplot in a realistic LGBTQ historical setting between the world wars. And the style is epistolary. It consists entirely of letters back home to his boyfriend. The third story, Louisa Ray, the daughter of an investigative journalist, is assigned by her gossip rag of a magazine to investigate dubious doings at a nuclear power plant in the uh, presumably San Francisco Bay Area. She discovers a report alleging that the plant has been designed to fail and cause havoc, which would then cement the oil industry's hold over the U.S., and she is nearly assassinated for smuggling the report out. It's not clear whether the report makes any difference because the release of scandalous information rarely changes the world. But someone eventually writes a novel based on her adventures. The genre here is crime with a subgenre of journalism, and it's set in a fairly recent realistic historical setting, and the style is a straight dramatic narrative. The fourth story is publisher Timothy Cavendish has kept all the proceeds from a best-selling book by a murderer, and now the murderer's criminal family members want their share, even though the author himself is in prison for life. Forced to flee, Timothy winds up at a remote hotel, which turns out to be a sort of old folks' prison, where he schemes with other senior citizens to break out. They escape, and Timothy is able to resume his life. The genre here, I think, is crime with a caper subgenre. It's kind of a comedic prison break story set in a realistic contemporary world. Next, we have in the fifth story, Sonmi 451 is a cloned human slave in a future environmentally ravaged totalitarian Korea. When a resistance group frees her, hoping to make her the first self-aware clone, she learns that she is just as fully human as anyone. The totalitarian government recaptures and eventually executes her, but not before she broadcasts the message that clones are human too. The genre here is society political. I think that's fairly clear. And it's set in a future fantasy science fiction setting. It's also sort of epistolary in style in the book because she is. we're listening to the recording of her testament, her last testament before she's executed. The final story, Zachary, is a simple goat herd living on the Big Island in Hawaii in a distant post-apocalyptic future where Hawaii seems to be one of the last places on Earth with surviving humans. 
when a member of a more sophisticated surviving group uh, in the novel, they live up in Alaska or something, arrives with some high technology, Zachary agrees to accompany this member of the intelligentsia to the moldering ancient observatory at the summit of Mauna Kea on top of the Big Island. There she activates a communications array, which sends out a signal for help to a human colony on another planet. This was probably the least plausible part of the whole story. Help arrives and Zachary survives to found a large family of humans on the distant world. The genre here seems to be action, adventure, maybe labyrinth, I'm not quite sure, with a strong worldview secondary. It's set in a fantastic future world and the narrative device used is an oral history, a long yarn told around a campfire. And that's it. That's the novel. That's the movie, those six stories. Now, any one of those would make a perfectly good novella, and any one of them probably could have been fleshed out to be a full novel, each with an entirely different and fairly mainstream audience. So why didn't David Mitchell do that? He could have had six whole novels out of all of his research and creativity. But I think basically he's just not that novelist. He wanted to test the boundaries of story structure. He's been quoted as saying so, to see how far he could push the stories until the whole thing broke. And he apparently wanted to explore a theme of flawed human nature and figure out whether over a long time span, the human selfish side or the human selfless side wins. Uh, He seems to conclude that hope and goodness live on to the very end, but barely, and that the fight never stops. Also, the Wachowskis are not the filmmakers to make those individual, clear-cut, straightforward genre stories. No single one of the six stories in Cloud Atlas would have presented an adequate subject for exploration for them, for the Wachowskis. They brought us the Matrix. They failed spectacularly with Jupiter Ascending, and eventually, I think they really fleshed out some of the ideas they encountered in Cloud Atlas in their Netflix series, Sense8. So suffice it to say that David Mitchell himself thought that the novel was unfilmable, and agreed that the Wachowskis had to do a whole lot of what they did in the movie just in order to make it accessible to an audience that has to be way bigger than the audience for a novel because it just costs so way much more to make a movie than it does to write a novel. This was a really high-budget production. And I agree with David Mitchell that it wasn't a bad adaptation. There There were not a lot of ways you could have gone about the book except the way that the Wachowskis did. So what have I learned from Cloud Atlas, movie and novel, about nested or complex story forms? First of all, that this is not a technique for the faint of heart. It's extremely difficult to carry off, and arguably the Wachowskis didn't manage it. I think David Mitchell did. I think Valerie and Kim are going to talk a little more about that. The only reason I can see for attempting it at all in the first place is to explore an idea that a single linear story isn't big enough or nuanced enough to contain. I think it's possible to probably write a nuanced and big enough story to contain a big idea like what he was exploring, but the nested story idea worked really well for it. The second thing I learned is that if I'm going to write a story like this, I'd better construct each story completely and separately before I start to combine them. The third thing I need to understand is that I will then need to use every single thing I know about narrative drive to decide where to split these stories apart and restack them. In Mitchell's novel, there's a kind of overarching meta-mystery narrative drive, and that's where the author, rather than any of the characters, knows what we don't know. He knows how the heck he's going to tie all these stories together, and we keep reading to try and find out. This puzzle piece quality actually seems to be fairly typical of literary mini-plot novels, which this is, although it has taken the concept to kind of the nth degree. 
The fourth thing that I've learned is that complex story form, and this is important, it doesn't let me off the hook for creating compelling characters. You can't just fall back on a technical form. In several of Mitchell's principal characters, to my mind, notably Robert Frobisher, I just loved him, and Autua, the last Moriori, and Six Smith, who is uh, Frobisher's lover, has created, he's created this real pathos and emotional engagement in their story. So you've got to be able to do that. I have to be able to do that too. Now, I really got to a point where I wanted to tear my hair out analyzing this movie uh, and the novel. And last night, after, I don't know, 16 hours straight of plotting out all the scenes, I came to sort of a dark night of the soul where I said, just screw it. I, I can't understand this. I certainly shouldn't be trying to replicate it in my own writing. I'm not up to it. I can't do it. I give up. I quit. And then today, ironically, I, I have ended up back where I began, kind of like both the novel and the movie did. It might be arrogant and it might be naive. God knows I've been accused of being both. But like David Mitchell and the Wachowskis, I feel like what I want to say in writing at this point in my life just won't fit into a single linear hero's journey type story. So I am confronted with a fascinating creative challenge to write a complex nested story myself. And you know what? I'm going to tackle it. Well, that's one story that I would definitely want to read in. It's I'd uh, have to someday, Charlie. <laughs> one day, you're, I'm going to hold you to it. You know, I mean, you said it on a podcast, so it's like in stone now. Um, what what I uh, what I got out of this was actually a really um, fascinating look at how to do actually a simpler version of what Cloud Atlas did. This is a really tough movie to follow. It has a lot of these nested stories and, you know, Anne went through all six of them. And can you imagine writing six different stories and then trying to thread them together? It's almost impossible. But the one idea that I kind of touched on and wanted to kind of pursue is this idea of a filament. And, you know, as we all know, filaments are small or thin, almost string-like things that are barely noticeable, but go through things or connect things together. And this is a perfect example of having a nested story with these filaments that tie it together. And I must admit, you know, I haven't read the book, so I can't really compare how the book and the movie did. What I do really like about this is this filament idea. And I think if you were to take something from this for your own writing, if you wanted to attempt to write something like nested stories, a filament is a very good concept to think about. A lot of times in fantasy stories, there's this element that the author wants to go between two different worlds. Typically, it's sort of like a magical realm. Again, Hero's Journey is a classic example of that, where it's basically a, a one nested story. You know, the hero is in the normal world and goes to the fantasy world. That's like one kind of story in a story or, or a nested story with, with the filament being the hero. So as a writer, you don't have to have bunch of different characters that you have to worry about. You only have to worry about the protagonist or the hero, and then you kind of can split between these two worlds. If you're going to do this through two, three, or even six stories, this filament idea is something that you're going to need to have some consistency between these characters, or at least have similar characteristics, or you're just going to go incredibly insane trying to figure this all out and keep it all consistent. What What's great about looking at Cloud Atlas right now, and again, Anne, I'm, I'm actually really appreciative of you bringing this up and doing this this week, is that we're recording this actually in, in November, and so this is NaNoWriMo month, as everyone knows. 
And I'm actually writing a, a novel during NaNoWriMo. It's a, a crime historical story where the protagonist has to go between the modern world and, and the world in the past or the old world of the 1700s California. Now, that in itself is complex. But the other thing is, is that my writing partner happens to be a nine-year-old girl. She's my girlfriend's daughter. And uh, we're writing this together so I can you know, help her learn about stories. She loves to read. But if you can imagine not only having to keep the modern world and the old world consistent, but then as co-authors, we need to kind of keep each other in check as to what we want to do. And this filament idea is an, it's an excellent example of that because if we can agree on the filaments between the two worlds, it makes actually the work a lot easier. You recall from a bunch of previous episodes that we've talked about framing stories and framing stories are ones that stand alone. Whereas a nested story, as we've seen here, depends on each other. Now, these filaments connect these nesting stories together. And it's important that we do have these filaments between nested stories. If it's a simple one, like the hero's journey, you've got the hero. That's the connector. But really, the only requirement of the nesting story is that you sort of need components to understand the other stories. What Cloud Atlas does is it takes that to like the extreme, like turning it all the way up to 11. These filaments within the nests are the different characters throughout each of the stories, they have consistent characteristics. And you can see, I mean, you can actually physically see it in the movie, but from what I understand about the book, you can actually read in the characteristics of, of the, the characters within each one of these six nested stories. So for writers, you know, Cloud Atlas is a great way to use these characters within these other stories and reuse and readapt and kind of add a little bit of, of differentness so that it still, it feels familiar. And I think that's the biggest thing that I got out of this is like, how do I create familiarity amongst the nested stories so that my readers just, they won't go crazy. And I'll just give you a, a brief example. It's the Susan Sarandon character. She's pretty consistent amongst the stories that she's in and she's only in four of them. And her four characters have similar traits. There's the wise woman that shares her wit and wisdom with her family, and you feel familiar with them. That way, I won't get confused jumping between the different nests. This filament is what ties them together. And, you know, in my own novel, I'm going to definitely be using this because I don't want to confuse me. I don't want to confuse a nine-year-old. I certainly don't want to confuse the readers. So even though it's hard to follow at times, great choice, and I would say... I wouldn't even call it PhD level uh, uh, storytelling. I, I think it's beyond that. It's unique and stands on its own. Well, I'm so, so glad you don't want to just kill me for it. <laughs> no, of course not. I would never do that. Come on. I mean, you know. <laughs> well, I have to say it has been a fascinating study this week. And I am so grateful to Anne for challenging us by tackling such a structurally complicated film. Narrative devices that is how the story is told, is question number three on the editor's six core questions. Narrative devices are something I've been hungry for and struggling to understand. Specifically, what are the various narrative devices and structures available for us to choose from? And then how on earth do we choose? How do we know which one is the right one for our story? I'm not 100% there yet, but my study this week has yielded some positive momentum. The device largely dictates the point of view, and it also seems to relate to the structure and style leaves on the five-leaf clover of genre. 
certain styles are going to work best within certain mediums, you know, epistolary in novels, for example, versus a musical in stage and screen. But the structure, even a complex structure, on the other hand, seems to be able to apply to any medium. Currently on the structure leaf, we find three possible structures, archplot, miniplot, and antiplot. But just as with the content genres, there seems to be subcategories that would allow us to get more specific with what, when, how of the story structure. Namely, we can distinguish how the story events occur in time and how the story is delivered to the audience. And that is going to change the experience of the audience and the perceived meaning that they get from it. A few months ago, I had a client who was working on an eight-episode biopic TV series that spanned decades, and he needed to jump around in time a lot to make it work. And he had a book that he told me about that I immediately bought and have been working through that is called The 21st Century Screenplay, A Comprehensive Guide to Writing Tomorrow's Films by Linda Aronson, which details fascinating options for how writers can structure stories. So essentially, first, she goes through the conventional narrative, that is the single protagonist told linearly in time. And then she details what she calls parallel narratives, which are basically anything other than the single protagonist told linearly in time. And she divides these into two groups. One she calls ensemble structure, which is basically just more than one protagonist. This could be a tandem narrative, which is where you have multiple separate stories being told all at the same time. And her little tagline here is same theme, different adventures. And then she also has multiple protagonists where you have basically a group of people either on a journey, a reunion, or a siege, which she goes into in a lot of detail in the book, which is amazing. And so her theme here is same team, same adventure. So you can imagine those group stories. I think this is kind of what we typically see as our regular mini plot sort of idea, the ensemble film, where everybody's kind of in it together and we're going through the journey together. And then she has a double journey, which this is specifically you have two lives in parallel. And she uses Brokeback Mountain as an example, where you have to have two complete stories that you're going to follow separately because the two characters aren't always in the same scenes together. So again, ensemble structure is going to be when you have more than one protagonist and you need to have a structure that's going to allow you to tell all of the stories that are important. And then the other category is nonlinear, which again is just anything other than a straight linear story. And she divides these into two groups that both of them have lots of subcategories, which I'm not going to be able to go through on the podcast, but I'm going to put some notes in the show notes. And I, I also have, of course, a link to Linda Aronson's book that I highly recommend you check out if you're interested in studying this stuff in more detail. So nonlinear, she basically has two versions. One is flashback. And then the other is consecutive. So with flashback, there's all the different types of flashback that you could use. We have flashback just for backstory, that kind of thing. The one that we talked about last season with Jane Eyre, which she calls a preview flashback, which is basically where you start about two thirds through at the all is lost moment, then go back to the beginning and then go forward again. And then the life changing incident flashback, that's what Manchester by the Sea would be structured as, where little by little, this event is going to be shown until we finally understand exactly what has happened. And there's all kinds of other ones, like I said, in the book. And then consecutive stories are going to be basically what we have here with Cloud Atlas, where you have stories that kind of pick up one after the other in sequence. So this brings us to the hybrid, which combines 
the ensemble and the nonlinear together, which she calls fractured tandem. So we have the stories that kind of are separate and they exist alongside one another, but also consecutive where they kind of exist one after another. And she uses the term portmanteau, which is where you take, it's actually about words, which is super fun, where you were to take two words that mean something separately and you combine them to have a, a new meaning. You blend them together. The example that I found on the internet was motel. So it's the combination of motor and hotel and together you get motel. And there's a lots of other really fun, nerdy word uh, examples of portmanteau online for your reading pleasure. Linda Aronson is specifically teaching script writing in her book. However, these principles can be directly applied to novels with even more flexibility and opportunities to create all kinds of hybrids and combined devices from style and structure, which I was delighted that Anne pointed out when she was giving us the six stories. You know, we had epistolary, straight narrative, et cetera, et cetera. So in the book, Linda Aronson does an amazing case study of these complex films, and she breaks them down in a high level of detail. I personally plan on working my way through the films that she lists, uh, and I think that will count as some deep practice towards my 10,000 hours. So in, in Linda Aronson's terms, Cloud Atlas appears to be structured as that hybrid, fractured tandem narrative. And here's a couple notes she puts about tandem narratives that I thought would be useful to Anne and others. Successful tandem narrative films consist of equally important stories, each with its own protagonist and each on the same socio-political theme, unfolding simultaneously and chronologically in the same time frame, which, of course, here in Cloud Atlas, we have the portmanteau and it's a little different. The films are always didactic and typically deal with communities. In some, the theme is more overtly political than others. If it is particularly political, the film will make its point by spanning a whole community from top to bottom, from the ruler to the beggar, often openly calling for change. Theme and moral are hugely important in these films, and the writing motto here is same theme, different adventure, which reminds us that all the various stories have to illustrate the film's theme in different ways. Always the challenge with these films is to make them good stories, not just sermons or variations on theme, which in effect usually means characters in search of a plot. Connections are of paramount importance in tandem narrative. Audiences who come to tandem films with the question of why these stories, and they're expecting clever and thought-provoking links between all the stories so that they add together to create one coherent message. So let's take a look at how, you know, the several structures and the global macro story theme come together here. To me, this structure seems to support this meta global genre of Cloud Atlas. It feels like society. It's like a story about claiming our power, about overthrowing tyranny in all its forms, about how we're all connected and how the actions that we take affect others now and in the future. And by way of how the characters are connected, you know, taking in one another's stories through journals, letters, books, films, speeches, and then a good old tale around the campfire, it certainly makes a lovely case for how our literary works, our gift, have the power to live on long after we do. And while I can see how all the stories are connected and they create this theme, one of which is very near and dear to me, as an audience member, I would have liked to have felt more connected to the characters. So when choosing your own literary device, point of view, style, structure, Linda Aronson says, form follows content, and this is how we choose. First, you must know what kind of story you're trying to tell. Why this story? What about it matters the most? And what are the elements that absolutely must come through to the audience? Then we can look at which point of view, style, and structure devices will help you tell it best. 
Oftentimes, conventional single protagonist linear archplot will do just fine and almost better than fine. It's absolutely what you need to tell the story you want to tell and to do something else would actually foil the story that you're trying to tell. But other times, you may find that you're trying to shoehorn your story into that conventional model and it just won't fit. And that's when having other structures and devices may be your best option. But of course, like everything, there's going to be trade-offs and you'll have to decide what matters most in your story and then make your decisions that support that. So again, I'll put a link to Linda Aronson's book in the show notes and I'm going to put a list of some of the films that she puts in the book and the examples that they are. So if you want to, you know, carry on with your education, you can check out some of those films. Okay. So there's no doubt that Cloud Atlas has has nonlinear story structure. The thing I wanted to figure out then was why? Why would an author choose to use this particular technique over just a straight linear? What does it bring to a story that no other tool can bring? Now, these sound like really simple questions, but trying to answer them sent me down like a whole bunch of rabbit holes. And and I'll be honest, I waffled. I waffled this week between being really glad that you were challenging us and really not glad that you were challenging us. <laughs> In the end, on the balance, though, I'm glad. <laughs> well, thank you. Um, it's no doubt that this type of storytelling, this nonlinear and nested storytelling, it's really neat. But why would you want to use them? Why did David Mitchell choose to tell us six stories that span nearly 500 years? What was he trying to say that one story told in a linear style wouldn't suffice? I started with a hypothesis that this has to be more than an intellectual or academic exercise because, in my opinion, that's really boring. And why would a storyteller want to spend years of their life on an academic exercise? And the second hypothesis is that it has to somehow be tied to the theme or controlling idea of the story to fully tell a a complex theme. All right. I was wrong. I was so wrong on both of those. As Anne already mentioned, it turns out that David Mitchell chose this narrative structure because he wanted to see if he could do it. It actually was an intellectual exercise. He wanted to see just how far he could push the story for before it broke. Now, I know what I'm about to say Leslie is not really happy with, but I'm going to say it anyway, because I think it's important. Because he did that, he created something that appealed to a small group of literary intelligentsia, which is why it ended up on the book or shortlist. Now, that's not a negative thing. I'm not saying that as a criticism, but it speaks to who you're writing it for. It's it's a really interesting book for people who are interested in studying story at this level, on the structural level. Okay. And clearly it appealed to the Wachowskis who, I mean, I don't know a lot about them, but it seems like they are the filmmaker version of David Mitchell in that they are also attracted to testing the boundaries of their art form to see how far they can stretch it before it breaks. By extension, I'm guessing that the A-list actors who all signed on to this were attracted for the same reason. They want to see how far they can push themselves as artists because they're all playing multiple roles, the gender opposite to the one that they are within one master story. This is all really fascinating. I mean, I'm a story nerd. I do enjoy analyzing at this level. But the downside is that I didn't attach emotionally to the story. So while there was lots there for me to think about intellectually, 
I didn't become emotionally engaged with anything here. I could have become attached to any of these protagonists if I'd been given half a chance. However, I think that by trying to tell six stories in the space of one, it meant that none of them were developed fully enough to engage me. And do I really care if Cavendish gets out of Aurora House? Well, no, honestly, not really. And I'm a huge Jim Broadbent fan. I mean, I will watch him for ages because he's, he's awesome. And Anne picked up on this next point as well. I also wanted to know more about Frobisher, specifically Frobisher and Sixsmith and that relationship and how it would or wouldn't play out. Also, Frobisher himself as an artist. He's a really rich and deep character. And Ben Wishaw's portrayal of him is oh, just lovely. But his story is stillborn. There's a germ in there, a seed of an incredible story, but it doesn't go anywhere because it doesn't have time. So in the end, and this is a spoiler alert, if we haven't given enough already, when he, he commits suicide, yeah, I could recognize this intellectually that it's a sad moment. And I launched into, you know, what kind of narrative drive are we into here and all that sort of stuff. But I didn't feel sadness because I didn't really know this character very well even though I wanted to. Can I just weigh in here and just say quickly that this is one choice that the filmmakers made that I didn't understand, why they telegraphed his suicide at the very beginning. In the novel, you do get a chance to know him. He's extremely engaging, and his suicide comes as an enormous shock at the end of the story, and you were just weeping. So I don't know why they chose to change it, but I just wanted to throw that in there. David Mitchell does have time in a 500-page novel to make you feel much more engaged with each of these characters, and it's one of the limitations of the film structure. Okay. Uh, just the two hour, two and a half hour limit that hour that caused that to happen, which I realized hours. we're three, <laughs> sorry, three hour, two and three, whatever. Yes, it was long. I know we're talking about the movie here for convenience sake, but I just, I, I just wanted to weigh in that characterization and building characters does actually happen in the novel. And I wouldn't want anyone to overlook the importance of that in their writing. Awesome. Thank you. I admit that it's really kind of neat to see how far artists can push the boundaries of their art form, but it doesn't necessarily mean that the whole is going to be better than the sum of its parts. So, and I think that what you've just pointed out is really important that the novelist, you know, because people listening here are primarily novelists, when you're creating this massive story, you can't be so interested in the story form that you forget the characterization and the emotional attachment. Like, for example, when we did Brokeback Mountain, that obviously innovated the love story genre. It did push boundaries, not as far as Cloud Atlas, obviously, but it pushes them to a limit that still allows us to engage emotionally. And innovation is not quite the same thing, but it's more to my point of, you know, push it, absolutely, but don't push it to the detriment of having someone engage in your characters and what's really happening with them and the stakes at hand. Okay, let's look at my second hypothesis now. And that is that this approach to storytelling has to somehow enhance the theme or controlling idea of the story. Mitchell says that his theme for Cloud Atlas is twofold. First, the interconnectedness of cause and effect. And two, predacity. The way individuals prey on individuals, groups on groups, nations on nations, tribes on tribes, blah, blah, blah. I don't know if he decided that in advance, but I can certainly see why he'd think that nested stories, as he presents them in the novel, would be an interesting way to present the idea that we're all connected. 
And this isn't a new concept. It's not a new theme. And themes don't have to be new or revolutionary. Romance writers bring in billions of dollars every year writing books based on the theme that love conquers all, right? However, in a 500-page novel that spans six stories, honestly, I would expect the theme to be very well developed. And I don't know, since I haven't read the novel, it may very well be. In the film version, which, as I said earlier, is three very long hours, (laughs) it really isn't. It simply states that we're all connected. And I caught myself thinking, yeah, we're all connected. So, so what? You know, and what's the punchline? We've heard that we're all connected before. What else can you bring to that? Because there are so many stories being told here by a narrator who is almost impossible to understand without captions, by the way, the filmmakers had to hammer us over the head with a restatement of the theme. Honestly, I really did get tired of counting how many times we were blatantly told the theme. But the theme is never developed. As an idea, it too is stillborn. The Wachowskis are so busy trying to hold this complicated structure together that they never get around to developing the ideas. Even though it's three hours, for six stories, three hours is still not a long time because we're used to one story told in two hours, right? So we're still shortchanging them. So thank God it wasn't a 12-hour movie, right? I know, I know. So it's it's a tough it's a tough narrative structure to wrestle. Did they need to be so heavy-handed? Well, I actually honestly I think they did in the film. Not because the audience isn't smart enough to get it, but because we're distracted by the makeup and recurrence of movie stars, at least I was. Since there was nothing there to for me to emotionally attach to, we're forced by default to approach it with our intellect only. And Look, I'm sorry, but I got to admit, for me, playing Spot the Star was far more intellectually engaging and entertaining than listening to three hours of We're All Connected. It's as though the filmmakers had to remind us that they were telling us a story and not giving, not just giving us a spectacle. Now, I know I'm kind of way over on the other side of the spectrum here, and it's not to say that I disliked the movie. What I'm trying to do is push and pull this narrative around to see where the pitfalls can lie. And for me, that was a big one because for me as an audience member, I want to engage emotionally with the characters. I want that cathartic moment at the end, which I didn't get with uh, Cloud Atlas. Although there's a lot of sort of interesting stuff that the story nerd in me loved. We could go on and on and on about this film and the novel. And I've got pages and pages of notes that I just we just can't even get into on this podcast. But the point, the last point I want to make is this. Remember that stories exist to be received by an audience. We write novels so someone else will read them. I talk to writers sometimes who don't even want to admit that someone is going to read the novel that they're writing. And honestly, don't kid yourself. If you're not writing a novel to be read by somebody else, then you're writing a journal. And it's a totally different mindset than writing a novel. Since novels are to be read by someone else, as a writer, you've got to think about what you're asking your audience to do. Who is your book for? What is it for? What promise does it make? I mean, these are the three questions Seth Godin talks about all the time. If someone went to the film of Cloud Atlas with the intention of studying story structure and seeing a a story presented in a new way, then they really enjoyed it. If someone went on a Friday night after a hard week at work and were just tired and wanted to be entertained, they probably didn't enjoy it as much because they, it's a total, it, it, 
It's not what they signed up for, essentially. Getting someone to read all the way to the end of your linear story is hard enough, especially if you're working on your first novel. Now, Anne is not working on her first novel, but (laughs) you're still going to have to have some fancy footwork, my friend. (laughs) Well, I put on my dancing shoes. (laughs) I can't wait to see what you come up with. I really can't. We'll see. Because if anyone can pull this off, you can. Well, thank you for the vote of confidence. (laughs) But, you know, a normal novel, normal, whatever that is, uh, the average novel is roughly 300 pages. And it's one story told in a linear form, often. If you're going to ask your audience to stick with you through a really long 500-page, six-story tome, you've got to know what you're doing. And you've got to understand what it is you're giving up or you risk giving up by choosing that strategy. Okay, so... I'm guilty as charged of being a huge David Mitchell fan. And I wanted to share just a little something from the movie that Frobisher says in a voiceover where we have flashes of other stories. I understand now that boundaries between noise and sound are conventions. All boundaries are conventions waiting to be transcended. One may transcend any convention if only one can first conceive of doing so. In moments like this, I can feel your heart beating as clearly as I feel my own. And I know that separation is an illusion. extends far beyond the limitations of me. And so I think there are a lot of themes that are playing through the story that may not be apparent on the surface. And, you know, we get the ideas about death is just another doorway, another portal. But regardless, I think there's a lot going on, obviously, in the book and the movie. And even though the movie does a pretty good job of translating Cloud Atlas to the screen, which of course is no mean feat, it would be wrong to judge the value of Mitchell's work from this one movie. I read Cloud Atlas in 2005 and went on to read Ghostwritten and Number Nine Dream, as well as those he's written since. Uh, This study over the years has really taught me the value of reading all the works of a particular writer. Mitchell experiments with genre, style, and reality, but of course there's more than these experiments, more to these stories than meets the eye. Writer and editor Clayton Andres describes the essence of Mitchell's stories better than I can. And he says, This, I think, is what really cuts to the core of his books. Mitchell's novels are always balanced right on the divide between literary craft and escapist fiction. They're fun, but also challenging. You don't find a lot of books on the science fiction shelf that set aside several paragraphs for an in-depth discussion of Nietzsche. But you also don't find a lot of works in your literary studies syllabus that talk at length about Goldfinger, Lord of the Rings, and Led Zeppelin. I love that quote because I think it really does capture Mitchell's work. Now, while these stories are complex and deep, my study has not at all been a slog. It continues to be highly enjoyable. And most of Mitchell's 
stories are complex, just like Cloud Atlas. Uh, Black Swan Green is an example of a straightforward and linear worldview maturation. Now, I enjoy the stories by themselves, but one of my favorite aspects of Mitchell's work as a whole is his uber novel. Each one of his books fits within a larger interconnected story that he's telling in installments. Writer Jonathan Russell Clark explains it this way, rather than creating a tapestry of a particular geography, Mitchell is telling one gigantic story so that with each book, the meaning and even the plot of the previous books are amended as he goes. So to me, this feels like the turning point progressive complication that forces us to look back over the rest of the work and reassess our prior conclusions and ideas. So what I would say, like one thing to take away from this is that if there's a writer whose work you really enjoy, don't be afraid to read and study everything they do. Really dive in. Look at the similarities and differences between the stories and among the stories. What themes and questions arise repeatedly? How does their work change over time? And if you take the time to do this, you'll learn a lot about their work and, of course, story in general, but you'll learn a lot about yourself as a writer along the way, too. That was beautiful. Leslie, thank you. So to wind up the episode, we take questions from our listeners. And this week's question comes to us from Larry in the Winter Level Up Your Craft course. Let's have a listen. Hi, in the day of the jackal, an assassin is hired to kill Charles de Gaulle. I'm wondering what your thoughts are on how narrative drive is maintained when we know right from the beginning that de Gaulle was, in fact, never assassinated. We already know that the plot will fail, and yet it's a very suspenseful or tension-maintaining story. Hi, Larry. Thank you for your question. This issue of narrative drive really seems to have hit a nerve with listeners. I've gotten a few questions on it since our Get Out episode. I can't give you a detailed answer without doing a full analysis of Day of the Jackal. And unfortunately, I've neither seen the film nor read the novel. Generally speaking, though, it has to do with the amount of information the reader or audience has with respect to the protagonist. And there are only three options here. Either the reader knows more than the protagonist, or the protagonist knows more than the reader, or they both know the same stuff. So what we've got to do as students of story is figure out which of these three scenarios is in play at any given point in the story. And we did this a bit with Get Out. One of them may dominate, or they may flow back and forth one into another. Then once you've done that, you have to figure out what questions are being raised as a result of that situation. Just because we know de Gaulle was not assassinated doesn't automatically mean that dramatic irony, where the reader knows more than the protagonist, is the primary method of narrative drive. But it could be. I'd, I'd have to read the book or watch the movie in order to say that with any certainty one way or the other. So if it is dramatic irony, the question the reader has is this, how does de Gaulle escape? That's the question that the reader will have throughout the whole story. That's the question they're going to try and answer for themselves. And the writer then has to parcel out the information a little bit at a time such that 
he or she strings the reader along right to the very end. And with dramatic irony, the way to make it work is to have a very compelling protagonist. An excellent example of that was in The King's Speech. So I know that's not a a specific answer for you, but I hope it helps you with your study of Day of the Jackal so that you can figure out how the writer and screenwriter have used narrative drive to keep you interested in it. Excellent. Thanks, Valerie. And thanks, Larry, for your question. If you have a question about complex story form or any other story principle, you can ask it on Twitter at StoryGridRT, or better still, by going to storygrid.com slash resources, clicking on Editor Roundtable Podcast, and leaving us a voice message. That wraps it up for this week. Thank you, Anne, Jari, Kim, and Valerie for your excellent editorial insights into Cloud Atlas. We hope our discussion has given you a better grasp of how to tell a complex story. You can find links and additional materials in the show notes at storygrid.com. If you're interested in hiring a certified StoryGrid editor or would like to find out more about what we do, visit storygrid.com editing. And if you want to connect with one of us directly, links to our websites can be found in the show notes. If you'd like to support the show, you can do that by telling other writers about us and by leaving a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher. Join us next time to start learning all about the conventions of the action subgenres as I take the team on the high seas with Pirates of the Caribbean, The Curse of the Black Pearl. Why not give it a look during the week and follow along with us? Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week.